This is the second cassette of Lecture 2 in the series The Church in the New Testament by Professor Veseling Kesich. It is a continuation of the lecture Life and Organization of the Early Christian Community in Jerusalem, the Hellenists and the Hebrews. I took these two examples to show the beauty of Christian religion that brings humanity and divinity together and how people have difficulties to keep it, even in spite of the fact that they have one to touch, to see, and to hear. And uh, also I brought it to you to see that you are not only one without with problems, that the church had the problems from the very beginning, and church will have problems until the end of the world. And the church, as long as she stays loyal to the incarnate Lord, resurrected Lord, crucified Lord, crucified, resurrected, and glorified Christ is one person as long as church keeps it together, there was a, no doubt the church will be victorious at the end. Now, uh, only one, uh, before I ask you for questions, one thing I would like to add. Uh, if you think that some of parishes in the United States have more problems than the Christian communities in the first century, then I will tell you, you are absolutely wrong. You are absolutely wrong. It simply means you did not read the first Corinthians. <laughs> the first Corinthians speaks about all the troubles that can be said to change. And uh, uh, let me read one particular passage St. Paul is confronted with the people who are very similar what St. John in the first epistle described. He said, already we are filled. Already you have become rich. Already you become kings. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise. Uh, these are two groups of the people in the church in Corinth and St. Paul has to deal with them. I particularly turn to this idea already. Already. There are two words in that awful teaching on so-called on so eschatology of the New Testament. And uh, this term is about teaching about the last things. What is accomplished with Christ and his coming? What is accomplished with the Christ's resurrection, Christ's ascension, with the life of the church? There are two points of view. Ebionite said, nothing is done yet. Not yet. Everything will come in the future. 
the, 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 this, these people that St. Paul writes in the first Corinthians and those people who St. John speaks in first said already is everything is done for us. Nothing else to expect. We have spiritual gifts, we have absolutely everything. So one group of the people said already is done and so nothing else to expect and we can do whatever we like. We are already saved. We are already reached the highest level of spirituality. We already possess spiritual gifts. There is no possibility for us to fall. And then St. Paul speaks about manna in the wilderness, how food is given, heavenly food, and how people were destroyed in, later on. So, and Christianity, New Testament, always speaks about two things together, already and not yet. Christ has come. Kingdom of God is already introduced. Power of kingdom already released, but the end is not yet. And the orthodox view about these things is best expressed by a term inaugurated teaching about last things. Inaugurated. Last things are already inaugurated into the present and the fruition, second coming, are coming at the end. Now, so I would like to ask you before we go further on about organization of primitive church, after all this uh, deterioration at the end of the first century, if you have any question on the base what is being said up to now. Because don't be shy because some of you told me now I already have prepared question for you for tomorrow. <laughs> Were these two heresies mostly among the Jewish Christians? And did the Gentile Christians yeah. how did they did they have troubles of their own sort? I think the first Ebionites is definitely mostly among Roman Jewish Christian community. And as I mentioned they didn't follow development in Jewish Christianity, what is already accomplished. And the second one, you both find Jews and the Gentiles. Because the many Jews in the diaspora uh, were very much influenced by the ascetic ideas, very much influenced by so-called uh, Gnosticism. Gnosticism, separation, the body is no important, only soul is important, and also Jewish Christians. So in other words, in the second, in the second heresy, you have both groups. In the first heresy, I would say exclusively Roman, particularly Roman group of the Jewish Christians, who are exposed to a great amount of humiliation, and they felt the need to go back to their forefathers and to recover respect for their country. But uh, the, 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 the docetism and Gnosticism can include both when close, because we know that some Jewish leaders in diaspora were leaders also in this movement, Gnostic movement. All right, so I will continue.
Yes. Would you spell All right. It means, I was asked, Ebion, Ebion. It means poor, poor. Uh, and uh, I was asked, do we find this word Ebionites in New Testament? My answer is that uh, we find the poor in the Greek terms, because New Testament was written in Greek. Ptochi. But we don't find Ebionites. It's a Hebrew word, Aramaic word, Ebionites, poor. So in other words, it is a Hebrew term, and this particular term we don't find in the New Testament because New Testament is written from the beginning to the end in the Greek. So, but that is the, when St. Paul speaks about the poor, if it is written in the Hebrew, he would use the term Ebionites, right? Ebion, it means the poor people of Jerusalem. But uh, when you speak Ebionites, in the first century, at the very beginning of first century, they are all right. But later on, they missed all the development from the very beginning until the end. And then they simply remember what poor in Jerusalem thought about the Christ at the very beginning. You mentioned earlier about Paul taking up a collection for the poor in Jerusalem. Yes. Is this the same? Are you referring to the poor in Jerusalem as the Ebionites? No. No. Poor, poor in Jerusalem, as I said, are poor people in Jerusalem who needed the help, right? And definitely out of this group, poor people in Jerusalem, the Ebionites movement grew up. up. So they can be linked perfectly well. So Ebionites can be linked perfectly well with those terms poor in Jerusalem. And Paul tried to collect money for these people and to, 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 that they, they survive their poverty, about which we will indicate in the organization of the primitive church. And uh, that was also his money is never simply dealing with material things. Money is always theological problem because you give money to the church in Jerusalem because, first of all, to help this church, at the same time to recognize this church is the center of the Christian movement in this particular time. So it is always linked with the theology. Paul doesn't do simply for the sake, that's the most important thing, to help needy, but also to establish his ties with the church in Jerusalem. Yes? Two questions, kind of unrelated. Yes, yes. The first one comes from yesterday, really. Um, you were talking about baptism, and then when I thought about it, a question came up. I understand other people baptized besides Christians, and that really in Christianity, baptism was given a new meaning. It was, it was well, okay. transformed. Right. Right. And I wonder if you could talk about that. Yeah. And then the other thing was in Docetism, how does that relate to, like, the dualism that we see today, that uh, you see once saved, always saved, um, spirit is good and 
and material is bad and yeah. how does that very good both questions are very relevant to our thoughts so the first question is uh, about baptism there are lots of people who are baptizing everybody was being baptizing in the desert in the in that early period of Christianity you have a baptism of John the Baptist you have the uh, uh, purification, baptism, many Jewish groups, so on and so forth. But here, the, for instance, this baptism for purification can be repeated as many times as you need. But Christian baptism is unrepeatable act. It is done once for all, Christian baptism. It is a baptism where we are incorporated into the suffering and resurrection of Christ. We are identified with him in his suffering and we are raised by the power of his resurrection. So that is, and nobody describes it so well as St. Paul, the most classical example, what is the meaning of the Christian baptism is given in the chapter six of the epistle to Romans. In the Romans, Paul speaks about this particular Christian baptism. So we are baptism, baptized into his death and into his resurrection. And all these outside acts of the baptism indicates it and points to it. So baptism is something, Christian baptism is something that is unrepeatable. And therefore, it is a big question today when some Christian groups, even within orthodox circles uh, trying, trying to rebaptize certain people. I think theologically it is absolutely wrong. You can't do this uh, re repetition of the baptism. Now, as far as the Gnosticism is concerned, and the uh, uh, Orthodox Church, for instance, uh, when converts coming from the churches where baptism is performed in the name of the Holy Trinity, as that is a form today, Orthodox Church will accept this baptism, and that this particular baptism is the link, really, in spite of the old separation, is a link among the old Christians. Now, the Eucharist is a little bit different. Now, uh, about the Gnosticism, you are absolutely right that the major tenets of Gnosticism is a dualism between body and soul. Body is evil and soul is good. Whatever you do with the body is all right. And there are two tendencies that leads dealing with the body. One is ex you have to destroy it. You can destroy it in two ways. Extreme asceticism destroys the body. Absolutely. To asceticism for the sake of asceticism to destroy the body. And the second is libertarianism. Do with your body whatever you like. Uh, uh, what, what, whatever kind of more moral life you're living, that's fine. Because let's destroy it in various ways. That is libertinism. And unfortunately, unfortunately, not a not, not tendencies in the present life of the you know, of the world today, you have a really revival of Gnostic teachings. Gnosticism is never dead. 
the second century and the first century, Gnosticism, it was the major force that threatened Christianity, and Christianity survived the attacks of Gnostics heresies and the Gnostic teachings. But in the modern time, it appears again. And I know it appears in many and various ways. For instance, in many schools, in many colleges, among many people who try to minimize historicity of Christianity, historical character of Christianity, to minimize it, to reject it, and so on and so forth, to reject Old Testament. There are some people who said, we don't need Old Testament. Why we need Old Testament? Because it is so fleshy. It is, you know, it is a gruesome stories, but we need Old Testament because we cannot understand New Testament without it. And people in the second century out of this struggle between synagogue and church that I indicated in my first lecture, they came to conclusion, let us drop Old Testament. But that is awful things. The Christianity is a rag, is taken out under uh, the Christian movement. So, so all those people in the modern, uh, modern movement who try to minimize historical character of Christianity, who write try to reject Old Testament, who are fighting gruesome God of the Old Testament, they're all somehow revival of the Gnosticism. And uh, definitely it is a, 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 a more, more dangerous than, than any other uh, 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 teaching in our times, because it, 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 it had very bad consequences, and consequences are simply on the moral and ethical level. Because every idea has its consequences. There is no ideas without consequences, right? Whatever I believe, it has a consequence for our life. If we don't believe, it has consequences. If we believe, it must have consequences too. Idea, they have life of their own. Dr. Kesich, in uh, presenting uh, some arguments for orthodoxy to some uh, modern fundamentalists, I'm often faced with the, uh, the challenge on one hand, if Christ speaks very plainly, as he does in John 6, about his body and blood and the eating of body and blood, I'm being told that's very metaphorical. If Christ speaks uh, differently, uh, some things seem to be elevated, some things seem to be reduced, and you wind up having to argue within the context of the New and Old Testament itself, yeah. not being able to rely on the writings of the Church Fathers. Mm -hmm. Can you show us how with the New Testament to fight reductionism and, and maybe the modern docetism and... and the, def, uh, so, could you, uh, you have a question about fundamentalists reduce New Testament? Yes. Yeah. Only well, using parts yes, even of yeah, the New Testament. Yes, yes, yes. No, but that's, I think, that any, you see, New Testament is an extremely complex book. And the New Testament as a whole is the product of the Jewish Christianity. All the authors of the New Testament were Jews except probably one, and that is St. Luke. But even that question is not solved. That question is not yet solved. So in other words, New Testament, when we deal with the New Testament, we have a, one of greatest monument to achievement of the Jewish Christianity. 
And on the base of this achievement of the Jewish Christianity, church was able to fight all those movements and the heresies of the second and the third centuries. Now, if, you know, if you create, New Testament represents canon of the church, on, of Christian church. If you try to reduce New Testament only to certain ideas, only to certain passages, uh, only to certain chapters, and to reject anything that is of complicated nature, right, what you are doing, you are creating your own canon. You are creating your own canon with the canon. In other words, you are rejecting the whole New Testament in itself, and in order to find the ideas in the New Testament that would fit your own perspective and your own uh, look at, at particular things about which you are talking about. That is absolutely uh, the, the reason why church fought it from the very beginning against it, right? So in other words, uh, we must have a Catholic out outlook towards New Testament, embracing out uh, outlook. We must not pick one thing and reject the other things because it, nothing can be explained in isolation. It, it, if you take things out of the context, you simply distort them. And therefore, it is a, like, a, like as I try to show it, that the third period, the writings I identified the first period, and then they avoid apostolic preaching. And how, if you avoid apostolic preaching, you destroy the whole New Testament text. So that creation of the, your own canon within the canon is absolutely destruction of the New Testament. You are creating your own New Testament. Any other question? Yes. Of all the various, of all the various heresies in the first and second and third centuries, in the modern Christian world, which seems to you, I know you mentioned Gnosticism, but are there others also that seem very prevalent today to someone like yourself who are acquainted with them? But for people like myself, I wouldn't know the right name to put on it. I, I wouldn't know how to recognize it. No, neither I. <laughs> neither I. Think, I think that uh, uh, pervading Gnostic ideas is the most dangerous. I, I do believe that very strongly. I, you see, it is not heretical if people attack, frontal attack Christianity about it, then you can really defend it, right? But it is undermining Christianity in that way and not appearing as a Gnostic movement, but appearing something as a very attractive. That is what looks to you extremely attractive to be very suspicious of it. So I, I would say that uh, that would be the most dangerous. All right, one more, any question? Now, let us go, we have a, to introduce the subject. Let us go back to the organization of the church. Organization of the church in this particular period of time. Now, 30 to 35. And I don't have enough words to stress that is uh, the most 
fundamental, basic period in the history of the church. That what happened between 30 and 35 determined the whole development in the church. Now, let us look what we find in the church of that particular period between 30 and 35. And our source, the only source that we have is the Book of Acts. And many people raise the question about historicity of the Book of Acts. Now, that is a very legitimate question. That is not a heretical question. Historians are doing it all the time. But it is a interesting thing to point out. A Roman historian, Roman historian, historian of ancient period, they accept historicity of the Book of Acts, and they praised it. Only some Christian theologian question it all the time. So be aware that is a, probably should be added to that danger that comes. Be aware of Christian theologians when they discussing history, because they are absolutely non-reliable guides about it. One of them, German theologian, very famous one, he had his own ideas, what Christ did and what Christ said, what is the meaning of the words. He was not interested in history at all. And his friends invited him to come to the Palestine and to visit some archaeological center. You know what he did? He refused to go <laughs> because he doesn't like to change his views about his view of history because he might, if he went to the Galilee, those excavations in Jerusalem, probably might influence him. That is something reality. History is not important for him. Only what is important, his theological idea. That is a danger. And that danger you will find in any church, within any church. Now, when we come to the uh, church of the, this early founding period, uh, we find a very complex picture. First of all, we find this church is one accord and one mind. That's a glorious picture of the church. And when you read chapter 2 of the book of Acts, you find how this church lived and how they behaved and what they do, did. And when, and this particular church in the Jerusalem was church that shares absolutely everything. They had everything in common. They sold up, some of them sold their property and put in the common funds. They were a church of one mind, one accord, ideal picture of the church. And this church is known to us as kinonia, fellowship, community, community. Now, I, I don't like to turn around because <laughs> that is the name for the church in this period. Community life, fellowship, everything in common, possession. 
And then, like in any paradise, very soon you find some disturbances. <laughs> so, some of you, if you have some experience in your com community that disturbed you, don't worry about it. <laughs> because the ideal church of the first century, of this founding period, had some experience, some disturbing things. And what is disturbing things? That people who sold the property, they brought only one part of the money to the common fund. And uh, Ananias and Sapphira, that you'll find this lovely story in chapter five. They did not need to sell it. Everything is based on the voluntary basis. Only voluntary basis. Many other groups at that particular time has a mandatory selling of the property. Like group Essenes that I spoke, that lived on the Qumran community. After one year, novice spent one year, if he likes to join the community, he must sell absolutely everything and it was a common property. It is, a, it is not a question of vol voluntarism. It's a question you must do it if you like to be a member of community. But primitive Christian community in Jerusalem did not practice it. They wanted to put everything on voluntary basis. Because where spirit is, freedom is also is. This message is continued on side two.